1,000 the better stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, I'm Kashka, one of SCAN's new story weavers. In today's episode, we have two stories in store for you. A brief update from The Lost Woods Project and a conversation with Callum McLeod from Community Land Scotland about their Community Landowners and the Climate Emergency Report. First, we catch up with Alex McKenzie about her Lost Woods project. We heard from Alex in episode two back in October last year. Then she told us about the inspiration she drew from Wangari Matai and the Green Belt Movement in Kenya and about distributing 50,000 acorns to all primary schools across Glasgow just before lockdown. Now she updates us on exciting developments for Lost Woods and plans for schools to mark COP26 by planting a children's woodland. The interview was recorded and edited by Philip Revel. It's lovely to be invited along today to speak about the Lost Woods project. Um, I suppose the biggest development for the project has been that we've secured a fantastic site on the south side of the city. Um, it's located near to Castlemilk and Kermanock and also Cathkin Bray's Country Park, which is at the back end of the site. And it's really exciting. I mean, it's really exciting because one, it's huge. Uh, it's 13 hectares of land. And to put that into perspective, that equates to 24 football pitches. So it is huge. And what is most exciting about it is that we're going to be inviting all the Glasgow primary school children to come out to the site in October to plant little baby oak trees, some of which that they have grown from seed, from a tiny acorn, from an acorn that was um, delivered to their schools back in March of last year. So that was March, 2020, before the schools went into lockdown. So it's really special. It's um, because these kids have been growing these oak trees since then and been watching them grow and been nurturing them along. And now they're getting to that finished piece where they're gonna see them planted up in a, a gorgeous site on the south side of the city. And they will be creating this, what we're naming as the Glasgow Children's Woodland. And this site will act as like a legacy woodland for the city on the run up to the UN Climate Summit. And it's gonna benefit everyone in the city and they're gonna feel connected to it because each school is going to have their own designated plot to plant up and that they can keep coming and visiting the site, watching their trees grow. And yes, they're planting oak trees, but there are also going to be nine different broadleaf species of trees that will be planted in amongst their kind of cluster of oak trees. So it is going to be a true woodland and planted by the community. Um, Every Glasgow primary school, that equates to 151 primary schools, and that includes the 11 additional support and learning schools and the three Gaelic medium schools as well. And we also have a rep representation from um, the Glasgow Home Education Network. So 
that's vast, but that what we felt was really important that we were including all the schools, no matter where they were in the city, no matter what their backgrounds were, or and it's that they could feel that it was truly accessible to them. So, but what we're doing is we're inviting a, a small delegation from each of these schools to come to the site. So that would mean that would be eight children and two teaching staff or two adults that will come with the children to the site. But along with that, that, you know, they're going to be planting up this incredible woodland that's for them and for the city. It is also, we're looking at the whole service that we're, we're doing so that it is a really great kind of holistic um, experience for them. So we're, we're looking at even transporting the children to the site using a sustainable option, whether it's, you know, a low emission buses or the group, you know, the electric buses that are coming in stream in September, so that they're seeing it from beginning to end that we're looking at sustainable ways and, and making sure that, you know, on one hand, we're creating this gorgeous woodland, but that we're not using diesel guzzling coaches to transport them there. And we're also looking at you know, the tree barriers and guards that, you know, they're made from recycled plastic. So every point we're kind of seeing about how we can do it in a greener way, in a more sustainable way. So the children can see this and, and they can experience the whole service. And then when they go back to their schools, they can do an assembly session with their schools and tell everybody else about their experience. And we will be also providing them on site with, um, educational resources and there will be workshops as well from some of our key partners whether that's RSPB or Woodland Trust or Glasgow Science Centre and then when they go back to the school they will have resources that they can roll out to the school as well for them and I think it's just so that they feel part of this very significant event that's coming to the city in November and that they felt that they've been elevated to that world stage and had a voice you know and it's it's to kind of show them in a real and tangible way how they can have a meaningful impact on their local environment and transform it for the better I suppose you know and and they've been part of that story and that they can tell that story we can pull this off by reaching out and sharing of resources and sharing expertise and skills you know, and, and some people might have thought this was absolutely nuts. This was crazy to deliver 50,000 acorns to 151 schools just before lockdown. People would equally think it's crackers that, you know, you've got 151 schools coming to a 13 hectare site to plant acorns over a week in early October. But it's really important that we're feeling that we're reaching out to everyone across the city so they feel that they're part of this story that cop doesn't get, get sweeped into the city and all people remember is a bit of traffic disruption and the Kingston Bridge was closed for a couple of days it's something more than that and it's feeling that you know that people on the ground can be part of that and have a voice and then see a true legacy Next, I talked to Cal McLeod about the report showing the crucial importance of community land ownership for effective climate action. We also touch on wider issues around land ownership in Scotland and the implications of the drive for investment in land-based climate and biodiversity crisis solutions. 
he shares some excellent tips for community groups on the best way to start the journey towards land or asset ownership. We begin with his introduction. I'm Callum McLeod. I'm the policy director for Community Land Scotland. Community Land Scotland is the membership organisation for rural and urban community landowners uh, in Scotland. Um, and as an organisation, we were set up in 2010, so we're just over 10 years old. We started off with 17 member organisations back then. We've now got over 100, uh, so it's it's been a, a growing organisation over the, the last decade or so. And we were really set up as um, an organisation, as an umbrella representative organisation for the, the community land movement at a time when really after quite a lot of policy activity in the early part of the Scottish Parliament, the Land Reform Act 2003 um, and a, a Scottish land fund, there was a feeling that by the sort of mid-noughties, the, the kind of political momentum behind land reform and community ownership seemed to have have uh, lost some of its impetus. So really Community Land Scotland was set up to provide a voice, a representative voice for community landowners, both um, rural initially, but also subsequently urban ones as well, um, and really advocate on their, their behalf. So we, we do that with, within parliament, with government and with other um, stakeholders as well. We do a lot of development work as well with um, our members. Um, we do a lot of knowledge exchange and peer-to-peer -peer support too. So it's really to, to help ensure that community land owners and the, the community land movement's voice is heard in, um, in, in different kind of fora, really. I thought we could start by um, finding out a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Um, maybe you could tell me how you got into this work around community land ownership and uh, yeah. what, what's your journey there? I was born in Inverness. I grew up in the Isle of Skye, uh, but I always say that I've got dual island identity because my parents were from the Isle of Harris, so I'm really sort of in Gaelic, a Skianach from Skye and a Herach from Harris. Um, and I did what so many people of my generation did in the 80s. I, I, I left school and, and went to the mainland for um, education, went went to university there and, and just stayed on the mainland. So I, I live in um, Glasgow uh, now. Um, and my, my I suppose what's drawn me into the whole area of, of community ownership and land reform, it's been quite, it's been quite a sort of um, long journey in some respects. I, I have an academic background, so I was interested in researching some of these areas from a sort of public policy, sustainability perspective. Um, I did a review on behalf of the Scottish Parliament, or led a team that reviewed um, Land Reform Act 2003 on behalf of the Scottish Parliament in 2010. So that uh, really sort of consolidated my interest in community land ownership and, and land reform. Although I'm obviously familiar with it anyway, given my own personal background, you, you can't really escape sort of land politics and, and, and community ownership um, issues coming from a Hebridean background, but it's it's been a very strong element and it's obviously got a long, long history in the Highlands and Islands anyway, dating back centuries. So I've always had a, a real kind of interest in terms of that. So I've been very fortunate to be able to um, work on a, on a freelance and part-time basis in this role with Community Land Scotland as their policy director. So that takes up probably about 
two days or so of my time, my working time every week. Um, I also do freelance consultancy, so I work with a lot of communities, predominantly rural ones and predominantly in the highlands and islands, who are looking to buy land and or built assets to um, enhance their own sustainability of, of their own places and their own communities. So doing quite a lot of that and with other colleagues as well, um, doing feasibility studies for some lar- quite large um, estate buyouts. So for example, in Barvis in the Isle of Lewis, I've worked with the community there. Um, also worked on the community buyout of the um, Isle of Bulba. Uh, off Mull uh, a few years ago and I also work with communities who are, are looking to um, not, not necessarily buy large tracts of lands they might they might just be looking to buy buildings or, or other assets as well or, or develop other other infrastructure and, and, and so on so I've had quite a, a bit of experience of that and that's been really interesting to on the one hand with Community Land Scotland the policy role look at the kind of big picture stuff and the, the policy dimensions of, of what land reform is about uh, and I would define land reform as changes to land ownership and land use in the public interest, but also the very specific uh, grassroots development work within communities as well. So trying to help them um, sort of develop their ideas around the feasibility of buying land or, or other assets. So it's been really nice to to get that um, that dual perspective. Um, and I also have that kind of academic background as well. So I, I write a little bit about uh, land ownership. And, and, and community ownership issues as well. We are going to talk today about community landowners and the climate emergency report, which was published, I believe, earlier this year in March. Yeah, it was yeah. published in March of this year. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Can yeah. me can you tell me who was involved in doing this work and why you decided to do this research? Community landowners and the climate emergency is a research report that Community Land Scotland commissioned back at the end of 2020 and it was conducted on our behalf by Chris Douglish and Bobby McCauley of the Institute for Heritage and Sustainable Human Development. I suppose that the background to the report was we we were aware, we, we know of course that um, community landowners have been contributing and addressing the climate emergency in a, a variety of different ways but we've never really um, had an opportunity to sort of pull that together and get some sort of baseline sense of just what kind of activities uh, community landowners, both um, urban and rural, are involved in in that regard. So the report is really our first attempt, I suppose, to to try and, and draw some of the strands of, of that work together and that sort of wide range of activity together as a kind of baseline starting point to just figure out just what it is community landowners are contributing, what they're doing, how they're doing it, and, and, and what difference it's making, really. And so both Chris and, and, and Bobby, in, in doing the research, uh, did a really comprehensive job. So they did a survey of community landowners using uh, Community Land Scotland's membership uh, lists and, 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 and that of other organisations as well, So which is very helpful to get a sense of the types of activities that different landowners were, were involved in. But also what they did too was developed six case studies with different community trusts, some of who are quite significant landholdings, others that don't, but just to kind of capture the types of 
um, activities that they were involved in. So a lot of that was framed around the Scotland's National Climate Change Plan and the, the Climate Change Adaptation Programme. So there's eight different kind of climate action sectors that are identified in that plan. So there are energy, buildings, transport, industry, waste and the circular economy, land use, land use change and forestry, agriculture and adaptation. So it's, it's a really quite extensive list, as you would imagine, with regard to that. Um, and, and, and that programme sort of talks about, uh, it identifies communities in general as opposed to just community landowners as being active in, in four of these sectors, energy, buildings, land use, land use change and forestry and adaptation. Now, what our research found was that community landowners are actually undertaking quite a range of activity in, in all eight of these different sectors. But also we had six case studies and they were quite diverse. Um, you've got the Carlowey State Trust in the Isle of Lewis in the Western Isles, which is involved in peatland restoration, working in partnership with Nature Scott. Essex, Scottish Natural Heritages was, and a range of other partners as well to just undertake peatland restoration uh, on, on land there, which is really important. At the other end of the part of the country and in, in an urban context, you've got Lister Housing Cooperative at Edinburgh that have been really instrumental in providing sort of renewable energy and, and helping in terms of, of the, the, the energy efficiency of the housing stock there, the housing associations so that have been really important in terms of that. You've got the well-known Isle of Gia Heritage Trust example where they've got uh, wind turbines that have been uh, really helpful in terms of addressing the renewable energy needs and, and uh, sustaining themselves with regard to that. And you've got a break in Forest Trust uh, near Loch Ness, which has got this fantastic innovative forest uh, school, um, which provides outdoor education opportunities for, for children and indeed other, other folks within the community as well, of all ages. Uh, and you've also got things like uh, Huntley and District Development Trust that have been doing community ownership through promoting green active travel through cycling and other, other aspects as well. And you've got Clear, Buckhaven and Methyl, which have been reducing carbon emissions from, from food production and, and, and consumption as well. So right across the board there, you've got a number of different geographically diverse community uh, trusts uh, who own land or other assets that are doing really positive things for the environment to address the climate emergency, ranging from really quite large scale land management or forest management through to very specific uh, activities around um, food consumption, food growing and so on. So. For, for me and for, for Community Land Scotland, what it really brought home was the um, just that diversity of activity and the, the, the obviously the, the existential scale and challenge of the climate emergency is, is massive, of course, and it needs massive structural change. We all we all know that, and we know that's important in terms of behaviour as well. Um, but it's it's very important to to capture the the importance of land and assets and ownership of land and assets and the role of communities in terms of actually helping to, to deliver against um, you know, climate targets. And particularly that, that sort of just transition towards um, a net zero carbon economy. Out of these case studies, do you have one that's, that struck you particularly? Uh, obviously we don't have time to discuss them in, in no. detail, um, all of them. Um, uh, and I believe they're all on the website, so anybody can um, access a little report for each one of them separately, which, which is amazing resource. 
Uh, but do you have one that was the most inspiring to you or closest to your heart or most surprising? I'd be loath to pick one of, of the case studies say this was the one that inspired me. Most because I'm, I'm, because I'm, <laughs> I'm perfectly honest with you, and I'm not just saying this for the podcast, they all inspired me. Because, you know, when we got the, the case studies from Chris and Bobby, you know, it was, it was really inspiring to actually see what was going on uh, within the different cases themselves. So, but what what surprised me, I kind of anticipated it, but what surprised me um, particularly was the, the sort of, I suppose that there's two two at least dimensions to this. One is, is the, the kind of holistic approach that uh, community owners are taking to addressing the climate emergency. So when they're doing that, they're doing that as part of a broader set of, of issues that they're wrestling with or or, or, or dealing with or, or developments that they're doing to look at. So they might be looking, you know, thinking about, about climate action because it's, it's part of, of the way they want to do things. They can see links between addressing renewable energy, for example, and in, in some instances, uh, getting using some of the fund, the profits from that to address the issues like um, fuel poverty. So there's a connection there. So stuff around well-being with regard to that. There's a kind of educational factor when you think about the kind of food growing uh, activities that um, have been un- undertaken as well to kind of connect people at a very local level to the relationship with food and land as well. So you don't necessarily have to have the kind of mass consumerism supermarket kind of model. You can think about growing your own. You can think about where it comes from, the whole kind of supply chain stuff there. So so that's really important from a kind of educational perspective. And given the fact that um, a lot of activity that we we need to undergo collectively is is about behaviour change, one of the very strong findings that came out from the research was that community owners themselves are actually able to demonstrate leadership locally to help that behaviour change, whether that's about transport use, through more green travel, whether it's about food, uh, whether it's about renewable energy, and so on. So I think that's a really important finding. And, and the reason for that, the, the interviews were, were telling the researchers, was because community owners um, are seen as trustworthy. They're anchor organisations embedded within the communities. So they are seen as trusted resources and trusted organizations within within their community and i think they can communicate positive messages around the climate emergency and how to tackle that climate emergency in very modest ways obviously in terms of behavioral change but very important ways um within their own community so that's that's a really important finding um yes that's such an important thing to have that conversation within communities and have trusted sources of information or influence. The other thing I'd add as well, just to that, when they are leading on climate action, they're actually delivering multiple community and public benefits. And I think sometimes there's a tension between, you see this particularly around the move towards large-scale land ownership and how we actually address the net zero agenda in, in terms of carbon capture and mitigation and, and planting. So there's definitely a tension between delivering public benefits, which, which we all want to see, obviously, in terms of the climate emergency, but also the community dimension to that as well. And, and, and how does the community actually benefit from the race towards net zero in a just way so we make transition a just and a fair one. And I think community ownership is a really good example of how that actually 
can be undertaken in practice. And we need to, there is an important issue there about how we, we actually do that and roll that out more generally. It's important, isn't it? Because there's lots of money to be made and lots of pressure to get these big carbon savings or exactly. big profits from carbon saving industries. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily see the these additional well, benefits as, as something that needs to happen. Exactly, exactly. The race to reach the target of a net zero carbon society by 2045 clearly has it's got big implications for the way in which we're going to use land in the future. That, that's going to change, has to change radically, of course. So, you know, there's, there's a big focus now on peatland restoration, of course. There's a big, big focus on uh, more woodland creation and, and targets around that. And that it's right that that should be the case. But the point there is because we have such in Scotland an unusually concentrated pattern of predominantly private rural land ownership, uh, that creates... Um, serious questions about where the role of community lies within this sort of new elite frontier of of, of land ownership and and addressing the the climate emergency. And that's particularly the case when you see um, basically an unregulated rural land market where you've got an increasingly diverse range of uh, investors and potential buyers looking to buy land. Um, And that can be corporations, it can be other investments, um, firms and so on, and, and, and a whole diverse range of nations are pushing the price up, um, often for kind of carbon offsetting purposes. But, you know, where does that leave the idea of community wealth building and retaining wealth, however you want to define that? It isn't just financial, it's, it's broader than that as well. But, you know, retaining wealth uh, and, and the benefits of these resources within communities themselves. So the role of ownership is, is really, really important with regards to that and having a, a, a more diverse range of ownership and clearly uh, more community ownership, Community Land Scotland would unsurprisingly argue, is an important dimension of all of that. And what we, as an organisation, are um, we published a, a manifesto before the Scottish Parliament election of, of uh, May 2021, where we call for a land reform bill that would have um, a public interest test put in place for new um, land transactions of scale and or concentration, which is really important, we think, in terms of just determining where the, the public interest lies in some of these sales. Uh, and we're, we're pleased that, that, that um, the SNP, Labour and the Greens support uh, a new land reform bill with a public interest test, and we're very keen to ensure that bill is introduced early in the new parliament and is as, as um, progressive and as expansive as it needs to be to address these issues. That sounds like great news. I was wondering whether you can say um, anything about how extensive is a community asset and land ownership in Scotland right now? I mean, it seems like it's growing. What's the extent of it? Uh, community land ownership is a very small part of the overall uh, land ownership pattern in Scotland at the moment, it's about between two and a half to three percent overall. The vast majority of um, Scotland's land, certainly rural land, uh, is privately owned, um, and it's very concentrated as well in terms of the, the, the number of owners in, in that regard. So, relatively few owners own significant swathes of Scotland's rural land. 
and there's obviously some public land as well that's that's owned by the state but again that's that's a smaller amount as you were saying you know lots of community groups and lots of communities are taking climate action and this is just a subset of these communities that happen to own assets and land mm. what difference did it make for them to be able to have um, a bigger impact compared to people that don't have access to these assets at the moment when you look at communities that own uh, woodland that own land where they can locate turbines for renewables. That, that's an obvious example where having ownership of the land asset itself enables them to use that land in ways that are going to be beneficial for addressing a climate emergency. And in so doing, as the case studies from a report and some of the survey findings show, are beneficial for the communities themselves also. That's not always the case because for some of the organisations, the trusts that were involved in our um, report, the their land holdings were, were relatively small and they were doing other things in partnership with, with other organisations. But ultimately, it's clear, and this is a well-recognised situation now in policy terms, that ownership of the asset, whether it's land or buildings, actually has fundamental influence in terms of how the asset is actually used in practice. Now, land reforms to tractors, and they, they do still very much exist, have long said that it doesn't matter who owns the land, it's how it's used that counts. But the two are important, obviously, but the two are very much interlinked. And you can see that very, very clearly through the whole issue of the booming land market in terms of uh, the whole kind of carbon agenda, carbon offsetting and mitigation agenda. So, you know, you have market analysis now that is saying the land market is booming huge interest in it because of opportunities for investment and profit and carbon um, offsetting opportunities that are attracting from corporations to other financial institution investors to quite small investors as well. So it's a very clear link between having ownership of that asset and actually what you do with it. So so that's an important dimension, clearly, to all of that. Uh, which on a, on a very expansive level is important, but also from a micro, you know, for, even if you've got a small number, of, if you've got small assets in, in terms of scale, whether they're buildings or whether it's allotments or whatever, um, you know, y- yes, you can lease these things potentially, and that might be the best option in some circumstances, of course. Um, but if you have ownership of it, you ultimately, um, you know, you've got control. And it's ultimately about control and what you do with that control and how it's exercised and the power that that brings that to, to be exercised in a positive, community-orientated uh, way that counts ultimately. Now, since... Uh... Owning land is such a bonus to communities and to climate action. So what would be sort of, you know, first steps um, a community can take? First thing a community should think about is why would they want to own a particular asset? What is it that ownership of that asset is going to bring to them that's going to be beneficial for their community? To my mind, ownership is always a means to particular ends. So then after that, it's important to to talk and consult and take soundings widely within your community to get views in relation to that. I mean, these are community endeavours, so it's important that everybody's voice is heard. Not not everyone will agree within communities. I've yet to find a community, including any of my own, that um, where everybody agrees and everything. That's just not going to happen. But hopefully you can usually get a consensus as to you know what you want to do with the asset itself. Uh, and having done that, uh, there's then a, a kind of process you would think probably about if you start from scratch 
putting together a steering group of some folks within the community just to kind of coordinate, really working out the feasibility of and exploring what the ideas might be that you want to achieve with, with the, the land or other assets in, themselves. And in my non-community land Scotland work, I am involved in, in working with communities to, to do that. So it's possible to get funding from the Scottish Land Fund. Scottish Land Fund, I should explain, is um, a government fund which is run by the National Lottery, which has at the moment £10 million per annum, which will allocate to uh, applications to, to support the, the capital costs of, of buying land or buildings. And that could be in a rural context or in an urban context. So it can fund up to 95% of the capital costs of doing that. That's stage two of the process. But before that, it can also fund what they call a stage one, is to enable communities to undertake feasibility work. We also want to develop a financially viable business plan to do that. And that's where, through stage one, it's possible to get funding of, I think, up to £30,000, potentially. That tends to be done from various sources. Consultants come in and do that. I do that with other with colleagues as well and have done for, for various communities. There are, of course, other funding sources as well. And there's some brilliant examples on of how to do that. Community Land Scotland has has a lot of uh, information that we can provide through our development uh, manager, Lindsay Chalmers, and, and colleagues uh, that can help communities as well. So communities should look uh, on our website or contact us about that if you want advice. And uh, I wonder whether you have, um, based on the report and maybe your other insights from your other work, is there anything, any one or two things that would be the most powerful thing that communities can do to either address climate change or adapt to climate change based around land um, ownership? I, I think it's going to vary for, for whatever the community is because the scale of, of the activity will, re- will vary for particular communities, I guess, in terms of the asset itself. So, you know, if you're looking to buy, for example, a fairly large woodland, uh, you might want to do some recreational stuff there. You might want, or, or you might want to plant new woodland where, where you'll, you'll get some kind of uh, carbon code financial benefit from that. Or you might want to, you know, get some renewables on the go. So that could be quite large scale. That could be quite beneficial for, for the community. But at the other end of it, it could be quite small scale community orchards or promoting green travel or, you know, food consumption and so on. So there's, there's a really vast array of, of things that could potentially happen in relation to that. I think the key general point is that we need to connect up this idea of land reform and community ownership as not exclusively the only mechanism, of course, but a really potent and important way of helping to address uh, the the, the climate emergency itself. So, So nurturing the community land sector, helping it to grow uh, through support um, legislation and, and, and other sort of development elements is, is really important. And a lot of that is going to be around expanding just the idea of community asset ownership, keeping that going so we get more communities involved in that, uh, both rural and urban. It's also about supporting partnership and collaboration between community landowners, but also between community landowners and other organisations, whether it's public sector, private organisations and others, just so we have that collaborative approach and support of kind of partnership environment. And that's that's more inclusive than, than might otherwise be the case. And the other thing is just about that funding support. And, and, and that's really important in terms of uh, the sort of development support that, that communities need as well 
that goes beyond just the capital purchase of the land itself. Communities need that sort of professional development support as well. And, and most obviously, that usually tends to be through the employment of development officers. You can, you know, have that as their day job, as it were, to help develop these ideas through the governance and, and oversight of the, the, the trust board as well on behalf of the wider community. So I think all these things are really important. I guess based on on this report, this is stuff that you're thinking of um, taking forward or supporting. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And that that ties into our, you know, a kind of ongoing programme from from our manifesto as well and and development ideas. So there's the kind of that broad big picture stuff. But we've seen through the examples of um, the case studies and we hope to capture more of these and help to tell more of these stories. Uh, as, as we go forward, we, we, we've seen, we know now, incontrovertibly, that communities are taking really positive action in a whole host of different ways to address the, the climate emergency. You can see that whether it's in Huntley, whether it's in, in Edinburgh through, through Lister, whether it's in uh, you know, the Western Isles, uh, through, through the, the states there. Mm. They're all doing it. They might be doing different things, but they're all kind of doing the same thing in terms of addressing that emergency, you know. I was going to ask maybe a cheeky question. I'm not sure if there's any um, community uh, landowners that you're aware of, but um, there might be some who do have, are in lucky position of owning assets and, and landing, and they might be doing really good community work, but they might not have thought of, um, sort of scaling up climate action or adaptation side of things. Mm-hmm. What would be the message that, you know, if you had something to say to encourage them to take steps in that direction, what would you say? For any community in that in, in, in that position, I, I'd say, well, think about what you're what what you're doing as a community. I think about how what you're doing now could maybe uh, focus more on addressing the climate emergency itself. So, are there ways in which well, potentially take quite small steps to change behaviour in ways that can encourage people to uh, act in a more kind of climate responsive way? Are there messages that you can put across within the community? Uh, with with you as a trust acting as a kind of centre point to, to do that, to, to kind of deliver that behaviour change, that educational message in, in terms of that. Um, but also thinking thinking kind of more uh, laterally as well, are there ways that you can connect um, the kind of activities that you're undertaking in, in ways that are explicitly sort of, and this is hideous jargon, I'm going to apologise in advance for using this phrase, but sort of mainstreaming climate action into the range of your activities because part of a lot of this let's be honest is about the kind of cultural changes we've said that we all collectively need to, to make so what are our decisions at the moment in terms of uh, the, the climate impacts and can we behave in different ways that are going to be more um, sustainable in, in terms of, of, of addressing the, the climate emergency and can we spread that message more um, widely and more co- cohesively as well and I do think that community land trusts have an important role to play in that. And I think it's, it's really imperative that the community land movement continues to address the, that, that existential threat of the climate emergency, but also that the conditions are put in place by policymakers, whether it's Scottish government, Scottish parliament, or uh, public authorities, whether it's local government uh, or other agencies, to enable communities to actually play their full part in addressing this issue that, that affects all of us and equally importantly will affect you know future generations to come as well clearly you focus very much on the uh, climate crisis in in the report but obviously we're also facing biodiversity crisis 
And there's a lot of um, talk about rewilding and perhaps there's a tension between rewilding and maintaining biodiversity and looking at nature-based solutions for climate change. And um, if you could maybe comment on, on how that biodiversity crisis fits in uh, with what you do uh, and how do you see it working together rather than against each other? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the biodiversity crisis that, that we face here in Scotland and, and indeed globally and, and the climate emergence in terms of the threat it poses are, are mutually interlinked, frankly, and we need to address both in a, a coordinated way. And I think clearly species reintroduction and enhancing our biodiversity base, uh, the whole rewilding agenda is, is important in relation to that. I think... Some of the, the, the kind of language around rewilding, I think, has been quite contentious in the past. Um, and I think that partly relates to this whole idea of, of wild and, and wild land in particular, and the idea that, you know, great swathes of, particularly the highlands and islands probably, are, are kind of sometimes portrayed as having been, you know, almost untouched, pristine wildernesses or, or wild places, when in reality, of course, uh, they've been inhabited for millennia, and it's only in relatively recent historical times that they, they've been lacking in, in human populations. So I, I think there's an important interlinkage between the idea of rewilding and repeopling, actually, as well, because there are human populations that have been lost as well to many of these areas. And if we take that framework, it's about how we connect the rewilding agenda in its broadest sense and the idea of sustainable places and communities where you have an, uh, a kind of sustainable human population, a resident human population there as well. So I think that that's important. And I, I do think the role of community is very, very important in that too. Uh, you only need to look back at the work of the late Eleanor Ustrom, the, the Nobel prize-winning economist who, you know, back, I think, in the, the late 60s, early 70s, talked about the idea of common pool resources and community conservation. And the community land ownership movement itself comes from the community conservation movement from the 1960s. And so I think the important point there is then how do we connect uh, the idea of community um, enhanced biodiversity, the notion of rewilding in ways that are kind of mutually compatible and cohesive. And I think having a community voice in terms of how we characterise our landscapes in Scotland is very, very important in terms of that. And I think communities need to have an important role to play as well in terms of the management of um, biodiversity as well. And land ownership on a community basis is, is important with regard to that too. We hear a lot about competing or, 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 or particular visions, for example, the highlands and islands from different quarters. Um, some are very well resourced, others not so much. But I think the key point is that the idea of communities being integral to and very much in the uh, the vanguard of of helping to to shape that agenda and interpret and and actually facilitate uh, what rewilding might look like to benefit um, the places themselves and in so doing benefit the communities also is a really important broad kind of public policy question for Scotland and for policymakers. And it's also a practical question as well, which I think demands more partnership working from a range of different stakeholders, public, private and community in that regard. Yeah, they're all big questions, aren't they? In Scottish context, it's quite interesting. 
it's been a few months since the report came out and mm. you obviously had some time to reflect on it and maybe there's been some ripples around it. So are you seeing any sort of interesting developments? We have seen some interesting developments with regard to I mean, one of the most important uh, this is not directly or as a result of the report because it kind of happened at the same time, but we certainly had discussed with the Just Transition Commission, which was appointed by Scottish Government, which published its report just a matter of days before we published our, our research. We, we discussed the, the importance of land reform um, as that kind of cross-cutting issue when we're addressing the uh, climate emergency and ensuring that happens in a in a just and fair way, and we were very pleased to see the um, inclusion of some acknowledgement of, of the importance of that in, in that particular report, and indeed a recommendation that public interest test be applied uh, to uh, significant land holdings when they're, they're being transferred, and that again reflects the whole issue about. You know, land ownership and, and the, the changes in land use that are coming uh, towards net zero uh, as being significant and, and the danger which is acknowledged in that particular in the Just Transition Commission's report of the benefits from that transition actually um, all going to um, existing large private predominantly landowners and, and the need to kind of avoid that. So we're really pleased to see that. Community Land Scotland was also engaged with the, the Citizens Climate Assembly. It gave evidence um, at, at uh, sessions for that. It published its report uh, just a few weeks ago as well, and we were really pleased to see recommendations there that very much reflected our own perspective and some of the points we were making in, in discussion with the Climate Assembly members. And they talked there about the need for uh, rapid and decisive action on land reform to enable community ownership to play its part in addressing the climate emergency. They talk about having a ring fence pot of money for community-based uh, climate action, which again is something that we advocated strongly for as well. So that's a very strong message, I think, from the Scottish public uh, that they are very keen to see more land reform, more community ownership, uh, and more action that's going to actually help to address uh, the climate emergency in just and, and sustainable ways, really. So we're really pleased to see that. Uh, and clearly, what, as, as we move forward in the current parliamentary session as well, there's a new land reform bill coming. Uh, we are keen, if it's going to focus on scale and concentration of land ownership, that the climate dimension of that is, is very much to the fore as well in terms of what that bill might look like and how it's going to serve the public interest uh, with regard to, to tackling the climate emergency and helping to diversify uh, Scotland's concentrated pattern of land ownership uh, that currently exists. So there's been a lot that's been happening. Uh, we've been pleased to, to be, have been able to publish our report and, and hopefully contribute to the, to the debate and, and, and conversation around these issues. Uh, but there's a great deal more to be done as well with regard to uh, land reform, community ownership and tackling the climate emergency and Community Land Scotland um, very much hopes to be to the fore and helping to shape, uh, shape that debate and, and subsequent action. Brilliant. It's all looking quite hopeful, I have to say, from what you're saying. I hope so, yeah, I hope so. It's all, it's all incremental stuff, but, you know, it, it's moving hopefully in the right direction.
Yeah, you've been at it for a very long time. It must seem like it was a glacial progress. It, it can do. It yeah. can do. Yeah. But um, yeah, you, you kind of, I think you have to become programmed to that. So to, or you have to expect that. So, you know, small yeah. victories are important. That's it from us for this month. You can find links to the Lost Woods website and the Community Land Scotland report and related resources in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our Story Weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter. Thank you.